The True Crime Society podcast contains adult themes and violence and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. If you'd like to skip the intro, please refer to the timestamp listed in the episode description. Thank you. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the True Crime Society podcast with Stephanie and Olivia. Um, It is October 19th right now. We're going to be recording some Halloween theme type cases for this one because I think when this comes out, Halloween should be in a couple days or like around the corner away. So, yeah. Are Are your kiddos dressing up for Halloween or anything? Um, yeah, so my little one is all organized. She's bought a cookie monster outfit, <laughs> which is very cute. Um, I don't know about my older one. She hasn't really spoken about it much, but we will have to get organized because it's not very long to go. Do they go like trick or treating? Yeah, so we will. Like there, are, I, th- I think I've spoken about it in the past. There's not a whole lot of places that do it, but there are some kind of patches of areas that yeah. do. And we know this really good one. It's kind of like in a. I don't know if you guys have the same thing there, but sometimes here they have housing estates, which are kind of a um it's not gated but it's like an yeah a, like a development yeah community. yeah development like a cluster of houses HOA. so there's one yeah exactly one of those near us so we've been going there the last few years and everyone gets really into it then so I think we'll go there it's a Tuesday which is annoying um yeah. usually they usually have dancing and stuff on a Tuesday but we'll just have to um I guess forgo that because they'll obviously want to do trick-or-treating more but yeah I wish they did it like the. I know, obviously, it's always like October Saturday, 31, whatever, but like yeah. every the last Friday in October or something, that'd be more fun. Yeah, <laughs> um, I've never lived in a place where we've had trick or treaters. Like growing up, I lived on more of a dead end kind of road that people wouldn't go to, and I think I may maybe talked about this before, but who knows? I'll say it again though. <laughs> um, but my dad has always like wanted to you know, like be the cool house with like all the trick-or-treaters that come. And we used to, when I, we were kids, me and my sister um, with my parents, obviously we would put up like crazy Halloween decorations, same for Christmas, but we would make these huge like Halloween displays and we'd get like my dad's old clothes and we'd stuff them with hay and make like life-size, like scary <laughs> people. Yeah. And stuff like that. Like we love decorating and doing all that, but no one would ever come on our road because it was just this like shitty dead end road. Even that's where we are now. Like the kids are like, it's so, we hate living here. No one will ever come down here. I'm like, it's yeah. good. You don't want anyone. <laughs> yeah. Now that I'm older, I'm like, that's what I need. Um, <laughs> but so my aunt actually moved to like growing up this, like you were saying, is that like a HOA? It's more like a bunch of town homes place but growing up this was like always the place you would want to go to for halloween trick-or-treating because there's so many townhouses and you know they're all right next to each other so you don't have to walk that far <laughs> and it was just like a big thing to the point where at some point like too many people were going there that they had to have police like block it off and you had to like prove you were either that you either live there or were like invited by someone that lived there <laughs> so you can't just show up but so my aunt moved there recently over the last year so my dad gets to live his dream because my parents will go over there and help them do like all the big like trick-or-treating. It's like a big party basically, like everyone just outside, like having fun. So that's fun. I haven't gone that's yet, exciting. but maybe I'll try to go. 
Even where we live, the houses are so spread out around here that you actually have to drive between the houses. And in our local Facebook group, people will be like, hey, I've left some candy in a bucket outside this house. Yeah. So where we live is not very, um, you don't get a lot of lollies for your energy, your energy expenditure. (laughs) Yeah. That was always, I love trick-or-treating, but also we're always like, we're tired. (laughs) Um, But yeah, now, right now, I said I live in an apartment in like a main area. So above a lot of like restaurants and shops and stuff. So I don't get trick-or-treaters, but they do do like a little Halloween fair and like all the shops will get candy for the kids. And there's like a little type of go to the shops and restaurants trick-or-treating type thing that they do, which is cute. But maybe one day when I I don't live here anymore, I'll be able to have the full experience (laughs) as an adult. (laughs) I, did, I should have sent you this. I, on Instagram, I saw this amazing house in New York City. You might have even seen it. And basically they've decorated the whole front of it with fake red roses and oh, put really? bats. And like it was the most elaborate Halloween decoration I've ever seen. I'll see if I can find it again and show you. I'll have to find old pictures of our house for Halloween and Christmas because I've always wanted to show Mike too. But I don't know. I'll have to dig them up somewhere because <laughs> it was so fun. Um. One more Halloween highlight in my life that I have is when I was little, I honestly don't know how little, like I was maybe like eight, There's was always like a, a ragamuffin parade where everyone would dress up, all the kids, and there'd be a little parade, and then there would be prizes for best costumes. So my mom made our costumes, and my sister was a duck, so it was like gluing all these feathers onto like a yellow sweatshirt, and it was pretty cute. And I was a peacock. So it was like the same type of situation. And then we got a bunch of really tall peacock feathers, and like connected them to this backpack type thing. And I won best costume and I won a bicycle. Oh, wow. It was like the highlight of my childhood life. <laughs> that would be a great prize. Even I'd love a bicycle to win now. <laughs> yeah, it was so cool. My mom was very proud. Both our costumes were very cute. So maybe I'll see if I can find pictures of that too. Because it, it's funny to look at now because it was just like all feathers and I'm just standing there. <laughs> But yeah, that's all I have for for Halloween news. Did you ever win costume contests? No, no. I've won like I feel like when I was growing up, we did win bicycles at like a fair once. But I'm old now; my memory's a bit hazy. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing. The, the the most amazing thing I've ever won, which is often a tangent. When I was an adult, I won three thousand dollars in a raffle, and that was very oh exciting. nice. That's better than a bike. Yeah, that's true. Also, <laughs> and it was funny because the kids were little at the time, and they really wanted to leave this fair. I'm like, let's just wait and see the raffle, and then I was like, oh my god, good thing. <laughs> I've never won anything except for that pretty much. Well, congrats on that. <laughs> I did just I saw there was another raffle for another um cause recently and I bought a whole book of tickets because the prize again was three thousand dollars. I'm like, maybe I'm just meant to win that. <laughs> oh my so god. It's drawn like, in November, so fingers crossed. Oh yeah. That's like me whenever the Mega Millions or Powerball gets really mm. high. I usually don't play a lottery, but when they're like, Oh my god, it's like a, over a billion dollars, I'm like, all right, fine. <laughs> and I'll spend like twenty dollars and get what was it like ten tickets then? Mm. And in my, I'm always like, there's no way I'm going to win, but I'm also like, I might win. Like, I really kind of mm-hmm. get my hopes up deep down. And usually I don't even have that many numbers that even match at all. So <laughs> I think my luck has run out with the peacock <laughs> costume. Got to manifest it. <laughs> oh, I try. <laughs> Anyways, um, so this week was, well, this this week that we're recording, it has been pretty big crime week. Um we were just saying how things have been quiet mm. in the crime world. And then you got like Natalie Holloway 
news. You've got more Delphi stuff. There's Rex Huberman stuff, and everything is just like popping off. Yeah, in the last like since hours. yesterday. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Twenty four hours. And so it's been a lot. We're gonna we're gonna talk about what just happened with Delphi a little bit before we start. Um, and then eventually we're gonna do a whole episode on Natalie Holloway because we figure it's it's a story that's like old enough now where a lot of people forgot the details or like newer true crime enthusiasts might not know it as well. So Olivia has been working on the notes for that. Yeah, I'd forgotten how messy that case is like I was just saying to you before we recorded it's like arrest release arrest you know like they just were arrested and released so many times and just so many different stories and lies it's yeah it's a chaotic (laughs) yeah definitely I forgot a lot about that one too Mm. um and then we did there was a little bit more that came out about Rex Hewerman that was in the news we just talked about that on Patreon a little bit but you know obviously if there's any big big updates we will talk about those on here and all that all right so we're gonna get into briefly what is going on with delphi um it's not it's not a long thing to talk about but i think it's a pretty big thing yeah it could be a long thing because there's a lot of like convoluted mess going on but basically um there was a hearing in the richard allen delphi murder case that was held today, time of recording today. Judge Fran Gull called the hearing to address other matters which have recently arisen after pictures of the crime scene were made public, allegedly via a leak from the defense team. So I don't know if you guys had seen that online, but apparently pictures of the crime scene got out. And we haven't seen I haven't seen them posted anywhere, but there's like YouTubers and people like that who are saying like they have them, other podcasts who are saying like they have them. I watched a TikTok today where the person actually posted three photos. I feel like they aren't the photos because from what I've heard, Mm -hmm. the crime scene photos are apparently horrific. Like I'm paraphrasing, but the people who have seen them have said basically it's some of the worst images to see. So what I saw today was just some clothing in a creek. I don't think maybe that is what these photos are. I did hear people saying that, but I think that one's been. Yeah. So basically these photos were sent to a podcast who have said they won't share them. So it's just a bit up in the air if anyone else has them um, and if anyone else has seen them. But there there has absolutely been a leak apparently of these photos outside of the defense team. And just like on a side note, there's the podcast and like YouTube accounts that it's so weird to me how they're like acting like they're taking this moral high ground and like making statements like, we have the photos, but we're going to delete them. And we ask anyone else who has them to delete them and do the same. And the tone of the statements they're making is very like, I'm better than you. And I'm also a martyr and an amazing person. It's like, maybe just like, don't say anything. Like, don't talk about it. Just if you really wanted this to be squashed, stop talking about it. And if people are curious, this is just going to keep going on and on. But yeah, a lot of virtue signaling. They just want people to know that they saw the pictures, basically. Anyways, shots fired. No, just kidding. Please (laughs) please don't come after me or anything. It was just annoying. Um, So anyways, the hearing was about going to be about that, about how these pictures got out. Obviously, that is really not good. So the hearing was today, and it was also the first time where cameras were allowed to be in and all that. There was a short delay starting, and finally, Judge 
Gull came out and announced that the hearing wouldn't be taking place, actually, because the defense attorneys, Andrew Baldwin and Bradley, Bradley Razi, had quit. So they were the court-appointed attorneys set to represent Richard in his murder trial, but withdrew their counsel today in a, quote, unexpected turn of events. What we believe has happened is that a member who used to work with the defense team, we think some there are some kind of reports that say maybe he didn't work there, but anyway, someone who's associated with the defense team saw the photos, he sent them to another man, and that man then sent them to these podcasts and wherever else he sent them. The middle man, we, I don't really think we should say his name, it's out there online, but the man, the kind of the second person in the chain of the leak has actually taken his own life which is incredibly sad um obviously we don't know if this is why but the timing seems to line up we have read that the fbi were apparently going to raid his house and look at his electronics and all that type of they stuff. had talked to him at this point but yeah. not totally investigated it yet so there like there was kind of this chain that facilitated this leak and the second person in the chain seems to have suicided essentially yeah, so I think that's also one of the reasons why this kind of exploded. Yeah. And got more the person, attention. And that that all only happened this month in October. I believe the person's funeral was this week or will be this week. Um, so it's all very, very new in terms of the series of events. Yeah. This, part, this is more like the technical part of what's been going on since the leak was revealed. It's a little confusing. So before Andrew Baldwin quit, another lawyer – named David Hennessy came to his aid and he put in a legal filing kind of in his defense saying that they should still be able to continue representing Richard despite the leak basically saying like it wasn't there like they didn't put the information out there it was stolen from them which you can argue obviously is still their fault David Hennessy he called the evidence leak a horrible tragedy created by persons not related to the defense of Mr. Allen Mr. Allen has developed a strong and trusting bond with Mr. Baldwin. Um, he said disqualification of either of his court-appointed attorneys would greatly prejudice his right to counsel in a timely trial. David also said that Andrew, the attorney, was betrayed in that he kept all Delphi-related items locked in a room or locked in a fireproof cabinet. Following that, Judge Gull requested that Allen's former attorneys assist his new defense team and kind of help them get going with this case and that all the evidence in the meantime all the evidence that the defense has now will get given back to the state in the meantime so right now there's going to be another hearing on the 31st as I of now his trial was meant to start in january which obviously it probably won't now yeah articles i read said there's probably no way it's going to start yeah. in january 2024 now um the reason why before we were saying apparently it was someone who worked there that was like how it was said when news of the leak first got out that it was someone that used to work there, had access to the information as an employee, took pictures of it and like showed it to other people. But now in the stuff that's coming out now, the attorney, Mr. Hennessy, he is the one that's like kind of was trying to help the defense team. He's saying that it was apparently a friend of one of the defense attorneys that they let use the office space sometimes and that he basically snuck around and found this information. That's all there is right now. Um, if anything else comes out by the time this episode comes out, I'll put in a little clip. But it sounds like I'll there was a lot going on behind the scenes for uh, David Hennessy to release that statement. It sounds like obviously the maybe the defense thought they were going to be disqualified at the hearing today, and then they just essentially quit before that could happen. Yeah, I I get what 
Hennessy's saying because, like, I worked at a law firm at one point, and I saw a lot of not like crime scene, crime scene photos, but more like accident photos and I guess sometimes crime scene photos, like shooting videos and stuff like that. If I took a picture of that and showed people, I wouldn't expect that to like derail the attorneys that I worked for's career, basically. Like it just one shitty person, like should they really be punished for? They've put in so much work into this case. But then again, I also understand the other argument of they either trusted the wrong person to be too close to this information, didn't lock down the information well enough, didn't maybe get across the severity to these people. So I get how you can also say they basically facilitated this. I just get both sides. It just sucks all around and it sucks at this person. Really, we all need to be mad at the person that fucking did it. That person sucks and they've basically derailed this entire case. There is now a suicide. The case is going to get further delayed. Libby and Abby's family, again, having to deal with more bullshit, more drama. It's just never ending. And this case, is it just feels like such a mess and it's very sad. Yeah, I, I just am so worried that it will never get to trial or that, I don't know. I just feel like I can't even see how they can get out of this mess at this point. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Hoping for the best, but it's just disappointing for everyone, I'm sure. Yeah, and I can't even imagine for the families just a glimmer of hope when he got arrested that maybe this would all come to an end soon, but yeah, it doesn't seem that way. Yeah. So we will keep everyone posted on that if anything else happens. Um, we'll get into our first of the Halloween cases. Um, so the first one we're going to talk about is the abduction and murder of Chelsea Bruck. Actually, we've been separated before at the party, you know, but we always found each other again. And... One year later, hundreds of tips, dozens of interviews, and still no arrests in the murder of Chelsea Bruck. Now one of her good friends is coming forward talking to Action News about the last moment she saw Chelsea and what she thinks may have happened to her good friend. Our Kimberly Craig is in Monroe tonight with the story. Every day, I think about her. Every day. Becky Aguilar-Brinson is talking about her friend, Chelsea Bruck, who went missing a year ago from a huge Halloween party in Newport. Becky says Chelsea was leery of strangers and wonders if someone may have conned the 22-year-old into getting into their car. She would not just go with anybody. She she felt weird around strangers and, you know, unless she was actually drugged, Like, that's one of my theories, or, you know, like I said, somebody coaxed her into saying, I know this person, or I know that person, and you'll be safe. You'll be safe with me. But Chelsea wasn't safe. In April, her body was found near some railroad tracks in Ash Township. Investigators have not released a cause of death, but her poison ivy costume was also found in April in Flat Rock at an abandoned industrial site. And they think Chelsea's killer is familiar with both locations. The Michigan State Police Crime Labs analyzed some stuff for us. We're still waiting on that. That could be the missing piece of the puzzle. Like I said, it could be somebody that was at the party that saw something so minor, in their opinion, could be very big, and that may be what we're missing also. Becky remembers the last time she saw Chelsea. The friend Chelsea came to the party with was leaving, and they texted Becky to come get Chelsea's belongings. So I told her, I said, stay right here. I'll be right back. I'm going to go grab your phone. By the time I got back to where where she was, she was not there anymore. I was trying to find her. It just... 
there were just so many people. There were people coming from under the tent to the bonfire. That's exactly when they lit the bonfire. And so I was going this way, and 300 people were coming this way. And it was just impossible. It was impossible. And like I said, my ride had to go. So I, I had to go, or else I was going to be stuck there. So Chelsea was 22 years old when she went missing on October 26, 2014, from a Halloween party where she addressed as Poison Ivy. Chelsea was from Frenchtown Township in Michigan. And there's pictures of her in this little costume. Looks maybe like a homemade costume, some leaves yeah. on like a leotard. She looks really happy. <laughs> she has a big <laughs> smile. <laughs> and she's holding some alcohol, it seems. Um, so Chelsea was born on January 28th, 1992. Her parents are Matthew and Leanda Brooke. She attended St. Patrick Elementary School in Monroe High School. She was the youngest of five children. She had three older sisters named Jennifer, Megan, and Cassandra, and one brother named Nathaniel. Chelsea had plans to get a culinary degree at the Monroe Community College, and she'd been employed by Olga's Kitchen at the Mall of Monroe for four years. Her favorite pastimes included watching movies, especially musicals, listening to music. Her favorite band was Queen. She enjoyed playing video games, including Final Fantasy, and her favorite television show was Doctor Who. She enjoyed reading and baking and had a special love for her dog and cats. She was raised very close to her siblings and loved being part of the Bruck Girls. Chelsea was described by friends as outgoing, optimistic, and a jokester who was always smiling. So on October 25th and 26th in 2014, there was a huge Halloween party held at Post and Williams Roads in French Town Township, which is 35 miles south of Detroit. It's been said that between 600 to 1,000 people attended, and Chelsea was one of the attendees. And the party started at noon on October 25th. Sounds like a massive party. I feel like I've read it's something that this person kind of did every year. They had held this, you know, huge party. I can't, I can't think of anything worse than having that many people on your property. But, like, oh. it was kind of like a well-known thing that everyone in the town went to. Sounds fun, but also stressful. <laughs> so the party was held at the home of a man named Michael Williams. Michael would later say that he didn't know Chelsea and hadn't seen her, which is understandable if it's a party that big. Normally, yeah. if you have a house party, you'd be like, how did he not know her? How do you not see her? But even the minimum of 600 people is a lot. Yeah, that's wild. I'm assuming it was like a massive property, but. Yeah. Family and friends are still frantically searching for Chelsea Brock, the 22-year-old vanished after leaving a party in Frenchtown Township early Sunday morning. Fox 2's Marielle Lou live right now with the latest on the investigation into Chelsea's disappearance. Marielle, what do we know? Monica, these search parties are actually very large, but you wouldn't know it. I've seen about half a dozen people go here into the cornfields behind me, but they disappear because they are so tall. There are also several volunteers here across the street. This is the site of that epic house party, the last place Chelsea was seen. Yeah, there, I mean, there's some guilt. Uh, that's why, you know, I was, I've was i been doing everything I can to cooperate with everybody. I'm extremely sorry. Uh, I've been posting about it on Facebook. Uh, I've been trying to make an awareness about it. You know, hope to God that uh, they find her. The guilt is eating away at Michael Williams. He says he had nothing to do with the disappearance of 22-year-old Chelsea Brooks. But he did throw that epic party where she was last seen. Now, he says it got out of hand. I knew I was going to have a lot of people here, but I didn't anticipate the amount of people that showed up. I ended up shutting the party down. 
turning people away. Police believe Chelsea and her friends were among 600 people at Michael's Halloween bash Saturday night. She wore a poison ivy costume with black fitted pants, a leaf covered top and a long purple wig. During the party, Chelsea was separated from her friends. I tried to talk to the mother. She didn't really want to talk to me. I think she's kind of upset with me in a way, which I understand. Michael says he never actually saw Chelsea at the party that night, but says she has been to several of his parties with friends and family in the past. Police have searched Michael's property, checking the fields and wooded areas near his Monroe County house. Chelsea's friends and family have now joined in the search as well, passing out flyers and raising awareness with vigils. Police and search crews certainly have their work cut out for them. Most of Newport, Michigan, where Chelsea went missing and maybe Michigan Michigan, where she actually lives, look a lot like this. Miles and miles of corn stalk taller than me, as far as the eye can see. So Chelsea went to the party with a friend named Rebecca Brinson, and she took a bottle of wine with her and labeled it poison. So that was the bottle that she was holding in the picture. We believe that Chelsea left her cell phone in Rebecca's car, so she didn't have it at the time she vanished. There's varying reports about how much Chelsea drank that night. Some people were saying that she drank a lot and others were saying she hardly drank anything. The photo that with the alcohol, like the wine, it looks like a big, like, I don't know, is that a like jug. a gallon? Like a jug. It looks yeah, it's like, like a big glass jug. Yeah, so in the photo, it's probably a quarter gone. Um, you know, obviously we don't know how much she drank the rest of the time, but just as kind of to point that out. I assume if you're at this big, massive Halloween party. That starts at noon. Like that starts at noon. You'd probably be drinking a bit, but who knows? Maybe she didn't feel like it, but hmm. who's to say? At one point, Chelsea walked into a pole and injured her nose. Her friend Penny Renee Watkins would later talk about this incident. She said that Chelsea was distracted during the evening and injured herself walking. She said Chelsea struck the bridge of her nose when she walked into a wooden structure the friend said she gave Chelsea a few sips of vodka after she hit her nose and some prior to the injury. So it seems like if you're walking into poles and stuff and being fed vodka by your friend post-injury that you're probably drinking a bit. Hmm. The party started to wind up around 2.30. Do you mean like end? Yeah, like wind up. Yeah. Okay, because we don't like say it that way. <laughs> <Don't you? laughs> like wind well, up. Like say, you know, when you wind something out, we like wind it up. That means like finish. Yeah. We say wind down. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but so I was like, does she mean like rev up? Like, like <laughs> so the party started to wind down around two thirty or three a.m. on October twenty sixth. I just Googled it. It's, it is British. It says the arrange, arrange the affairs of and dissolve dissolve. So basically, it means you know start shutting shit down <laughs> it's funny because we say literally the opposite like oh we're all winding down like we do use wind down as well like i say the kids you know it's time to wind down but also yeah i've never really thought about but it also it's time to wind up <laughs> um several of chelsea's friends asked if she wanted to lift home but she turned them all down and she was last seen around 3 a.m leaving with a man who was unidentified at the time so when chelsea didn't return home her parents reported her missing and started searching for her they distributed more than a million flyers. People wore hashtag find Chelsea Brock bracelets, probably kind of like the Live Strong bracelet type mm, things. The rubber bracelets. Yeah. A $17,000 reward was posted for any details about her whereabouts. It was later increased to a reward of $30,000 after donations poured in from the community. 
Her parents made a public appeal for Chelsea to be reunited safely to them. Chelsea's favorite color was purple, so a purple ribbon campaign began in the community. For more than five months after Chelsea disappeared, everyone wore purple ribbons to work, school, and beyond to remind those around them that she had still not been found. By this time, everyone in the community knew that it was unlikely Chelsea would still be found alive. The big break in the case came in April 2015. Uh, April 5th, Chelsea's poison ivy costume was recovered at an abandoned industrial site on Peters Road south of Van Horn Road in Flat Rock. On April 24th, 2015, the naked remains of a woman were found in the same area at a construction site. The scene was 10 miles away from where Chelsea was last seen. Chelsea was identified using her dental records, and she'd suffered multiple facial fractures and chipped teeth. And sadly, the news that the body is that of Chelsea Brooks is the last thing that this small community wanted to hear. I think it's unbelievably tragic. It's a, it, I'm glad they found her. Maybe they can resolve this and find the, the criminal that did it. But it's, we, there's too much of this stuff going on these days. And when you, you have to ask yourself a question, why is this, these things happening? I played volleyball with her in middle school, actually. So, like, it had been a while since I've seen her. But, you know, like, being in such a small town, like, everyone knows her and everyone kind of came together because it affects everyone. I think what we're really kind of gearing towards now is just... Um, Again, love and support from the community, from the family, from the friends of this town, to the family, um, and, and now and now justice. Beyond, beyond terrible, it really is, you know. I mean, I don't, you know, you, you just, you, you see it and just, it makes you cry. It's really tragic, you know. And now the search for Chelsea Brooks' killer begins, and people here and maybe said they will do whatever it takes to help police find that person and put them behind bars. Um, this part seems random to be included but it'll come back around later yeah the medical examiner said that she was 99.9 percent sure that chelsea did not die from being choked she pointed out that intense pressure has to be applied for at least four minutes straight to strangle someone to death chelsea's cause of death was ruled as blunt force trauma her body had been found under a log that had probably fallen on it and had been there for months which made the autopsy harder to conduct as we mentioned earlier, Chelsea did hurt her nose on the night that she vanished at the party, but the medical examiner said that her facial fractures couldn't be attributed to an incident like that. Obviously, blunt force trauma would seem more like a severe wound versus bumping your nose and hurting it. Male DNA was found on the leggings of Chelsea's costume, and at the time, in 2015, no match to the DNA was identified, but... On July 21st, 2016, the DNA found at Chelsea's crime scene came up with a CODIS match. The DNA belonged to a man named Daniel Clay. Twelve officers conducted surveillance on Daniel's home after they made the match. When they knocked on his door, Daniel ran out the back. So, immediate red flag. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess DNA is enough of a red flag, but <laughs> definitely looks suspicious when you immediately run away. Daniel was arrested and charged with second-degree murder. He would later be charged with one count of concealment of a body. Daniel's murder charge would eventually be changed to open murder. Um, so he told the judge, I don't want a bond. And the judge was like, okay, and granted the request. <laughs> Makes it easier for him. <laughs> Daniel had a long rap sheet of crimes like burglary, drug possession, and unlawful entry. After he was arrested, he left two voicemails to his ex-girlfriend, who is the mother of his son. Her name is Jessica, confessing to the murder, saying that he, quote, fucked up 
big time and, quote, was going to be gone for a really long time. He also left his current girlfriend, then girlfriend anyways, Kelly Richter, a voicemail confessing he had killed Chelsea. He's not the sharpest tool, it seems. (laughs) Unless he was just like, I'm ready to go to jail. Yeah. I'm sorry. Daniel Clay apologizing for what he's accused of exclusively to Action News cameras after his arraignment on second-degree murder charges. The 27-year-old Newport man is accused of killing Chelsea Brock. In court today, he told the judge he didn't want Bond, apparently preferring a jail cell. The judge agreed. Clay, who has 10 previous arrests on his record, reportedly told his current girlfriend in a confession from jail he picked up the 22-year-old Brock after a Halloween party and rough sex turned deadly. Prosecutors will soon lay out their version of events. No evidence before us, uh, nor any reason to believe that the case was, that the murder was premeditated. We'll let justice uh, prevail. Action News also learning today from sources the suspect had some of Brooks' items in his home. In court, Brooks' immediate family sat in the front row just feet from Clay. Others in the back could be heard seething with frustration and anger once face to face with the suspect. They later left without comment. Daniel confessed to the police that he had killed Chelsea, but he maintained, see, but then all this, it's like, like, yeah, I did it, but, but he maintained that it was an accident. He told police that he'd seen her walking along the road after she left the party and he offered her a ride. Monroe County Sheriff Detective Brian Sroka said he pulled up next to her, asked if she wanted a ride. She said she did. She got in the vehicle. He stated that they drove down the road a little bit and they proceeded to have sexual relations there. But then I feel like that can't be true at all because I'm, unless she like knew him before. Yeah. Because all of her friends were like, do you want to ride? Do you want to ride? And she was like, no, no, no. And she was last seen with a guy. So like, was he at the party and she was like leaving with him on purpose? I don't know. It's all a bit, um, what's the word? Like vague, that, that bit of it. Yeah. Daniel told detectives he and Chelsea started having consensual sex and that she asked him to choke her. He did with his hands for about 20 to 30 seconds. She stopped breathing and he tried CPR, he claimed, but he couldn't revive her. He told detectives he freaked out. Uh, Detective Sroka said he didn't call the police, so he began to drive around for 30 to 45 minutes. So Daniel said he drove to some train tracks about 10 miles from the party's location then carried the body from the vehicle into a wooded area until he became tired and hid her body under some tree branches. Then he moved the body further into the woods before leaving her body hidden under more tree branches. During his interview with police, Daniel said, can I get a cigarette, please? This is about to make me have a panic attack. I'm literally feeling myself sweating and about to start crying and passing out. Police said to Daniel, you're smirking right now. And he said, he said, I did stupid shit. I'm not smirking right now. This is a clip of Daniel Clay being interrogated by investigators after he was arrested. Daniel, D-A-N-I-E-L. Clay, C-L-A-Y. You have the right to remain silent, you understand? Yes? Mm -hmm. Okay. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law, do you understand? Yeah. You have the right to talk to a lawyer and have him present with you while you are being questioned, do you understand? Yeah. I think the thing is, Daniel, all right, is you're telling me there's a possibility. You had sex with a girl in the backseat of that car? Yeah. It was backseat, right? Yeah. You had sex with a female that had dark hair in the back of your car. Yeah. All right? You're telling me you left alone. Mm-hmm. There's a possibility, all right, a likelihood, and I say likelihood, 
which I'm 99.9% sure that it was Chelsea that you had sex with. Like, I don't remember who I had sex with that night. I know I was f***ed up and I had sex with someone. I've always wondered if it could have been her or not. And then you guys called me and you freaked me out. Well, I, I didn't want to say I had sex with somebody and then find out it's her and then, you know, she disappeared. And yeah. I know I left alone. I know I didn't do anything. I, I don't even know where the f*** her costume was found at. I don't know where that spot is. I do know the other spot, like, that area. I don't know where okay. she was found along there. See, but the thing, but, the thing is, is you remember... I mean, it's coming back. It was skin, right? From force, like, from tear. Oh. Your DNA cells were on where her crotch was torn and where her top was torn. From grabbing her or something. Okay. Like that. So that's where your DNA was. Okay. I'm past that. Okay. Right. I know that you tore that. I tore it. We're past it. off or whatever. Yeah. Okay. So, but it was torn. You had to tear it. I didn't tear it. But I'm not getting. I would have been somebody okay. after me or something. Okay. Or something. So yeah. there was, and this yeah. is the thing. All right. There had to be somebody after me. Something Listen to me, Daniel. We're past all that. Okay. All right. I have your DNA where her stuff was tore. Nobody others. Nobody else's. Nobody. No one. Okay. This is where we're at. Okay. This is where it's time. Something happened. When you left with her, listen, when you left, either something happened where it was intentional, unintentional, accidental. Okay, so listen to me. Now is the time for you to tell us what happened because are you that monster murderer? It wasn't. Did you intentionally? No, I did not intentionally hurt her. Okay, then we need to know what happened. Okay, there's a we, big, there's a big difference. And she did get freaky. Okay. And it, we sat there, and then she's like, "All right, well, let's go," because we had sex there. And then we left. Okay. And had sex somewhere else. Where? Where? Somewhere else. I don't. We were driving. It wasn't driving around. We were just driving around. Okay. Having sex because I she did like leave, and I seen her as I was pulling out. She's like, "I'm about to walk. I'm about to walk. I'm so tired of this. I'm like, stop in and we'll go." Okay. She's like, "Okay." Okay. I had sex. It got rough. Like rough nice and rough. I know. I choked and stuff. Yeah. And then she got up and I freaked out. I was wasted. Okay. So hold on and let's stop. Now this, you feel like a lot of shit just went off of your chest, don't you? Yeah, because it's something that it's know, something that eats you up. All right. Much. I don't know. I'm telling you, I don't remember. Without an explanation, you realize you're gonna look like an animal. I know. You know that. I was blacked out. I don't. What am I supposed to say? Better. Like. You remember details. I remember after. details. You remember, Daniel. I remember you parts. Remember, you still want to say. I remember, remember parts. So that part we need you to remember. I don't know. Like I remember going like this and hitting on it and trying to wake her up after I couldn't give her a CPR. I could get the, the ones here. The jaw thing, I literally have no idea how I did that unless like when I was getting out of the car I hit it in the door or something maybe. And you would have had to have been a smash. I mean, not on purpose. I could see that. That I could I could understand if I did it not on purpose. You know, I was upset and I was I was losing my mind. She but I never did it you would have purpose. Been. On August twenty eighth, twenty sixteen, Daniel underwent a psychiatric evaluation and was found competent to stand trial. In October twenty sixteen, one year after Chelsea was murdered, investigators gave an update on her case. They said a thousand tips had been gathered from the public, eight hundred interviews were conducted. 34 search warrants signed, 14 subpoenas served, and the assistance of 50 law enforcement agencies. 
On November 6, 2016, a court hearing was held regarding the sexual assault of a woman by Daniel Clay in June 2016, a month before he was arrested for Chelsea's murder. So the woman said on the stand, he grabbed me by the hair and dragged me off the couch. I didn't know what to do. I'm, I'm screaming, no, stop. He raped me. He's charged with Chelsea Brooks' murder, but tonight Daniel Clay has a whole host of new legal problems. Late this morning, Clay was charged with home invasion and first-degree criminal sexual conduct related to a completely separate case. Let's bring in Priya Mann, who joins us live to tell us more. Priya? Exactly two weeks ago, Daniel Clay was charged with second-degree murder. He's accused of killing 22-year-old Chelsea Brooke back in 2014. In May of this year, DNA collected from an unrelated felony arrest linked Clay to Brooke's murder. In June, one month after that felony arrest, a Monroe woman was raped inside her apartment. Today, Monroe County prosecutors charge Clay with that assault. It's alleged on June 9th, Clay forced his way into an apartment and raped a woman in the city of Monroe. Clay was not a suspect in the alleged home invasion and rape when he was charged with Brooks' murder. In 2014, the Maybe woman disappeared from a Halloween party in Frenchtown Township. In April 2015, investigators found her poison ivy costume in Flat Rock. Two weeks later, Brooks' body was found in Ash Township, about 12 miles from where she was last seen. Police got a huge break in the case one year later. In May, Clay was arrested for allegedly stealing a backpack containing $700 worth of tattoo equipment. New laws allowed police to collect DNA at the time of the arrest. It's alleged Clay's DNA matched evidence found on Chelsea Brooks' costume. Police do not believe the latest charges are connected to the Brooke investigation. On April 12, 2017, Daniel testified during a hearing that he was under duress when interviewed by detectives. He said, I was really stressed out. I was scared. Judge Roy ruled that the recording of Daniel's interview will be allowed as evidence in his trial regardless, and jury selection started on May 8, 2017. The trial ran for 10 days, and the prosecution said three things showed that Chelsea's death was not an accident. The blunt force trauma to her face blood on the inside of her costume, and the torn straps and crotch of her costume. We learned during the trial that Chelsea's tights had been ripped open along the seams and that the straps of her top had been ripped, which doesn't really match up with Daniel's story of them having consensual sex. As mentioned earlier, Chelsea died from blunt force trauma and not asphyxiation as claimed by Daniel. And if you remember earlier too, the medical examiner said that Chelsea would have had to be strangled for four minutes, whereas he said, I think he did it for 30, 35 seconds. Yeah. So basically, even if she did die from asphyxiation, his story still, which she didn't, but his story still wouldn't have matched up with the cause of death. Yeah. Daniel told the court that he had cried after Chelsea died and that he felt guilty about what happened. On May 16, 2017, Daniel was found guilty of concealing a death and felony murder. On July 13th, he was sentenced as Chelsea's family looked on. Pictures of Chelsea scattered about them on easels as they spoke about how a beautiful life had been cut short and the impact her murder had on those who loved her. Chelsea's mother, Leandra, told the court about how she'd forgiven Daniel. She also gave him a Bible. Daniel said in response, I thank you for that Bible and I will keep it as long as I'm able to. I'm sorry for everything. The judge gave his thoughts on Daniel. The judge said, I spent 10 days in trial with Mr. Clay and listened to countless hours of him changing his story, changing his story every time the detectives questioned him or brought up something new. It was very clear to me, Mr. Clay, you are a liar, a rapist, and a killer. The judge sentenced Daniel to life without parole for felony murder. He was given an additional 
concurrent five-year sentence for concealing the death of an individual. Daniel appealed the murder conviction, and his appeal was denied in January 2019. The latter sentence was discharged in July 2021 as time served. In regard to the home invasion and sexual assault case that was separate to Chelsea's murder, Daniel was charged with first-degree home invasion and first-degree criminal sexual conduct. On April 29, 2019, Daniel received an additional sentence of 39 months in prison for that crime. He's serving his sentences at Kinross Correctional Facility in Michigan. So that one seems like Daniel was an all-around shit person, living a shit life, treating people horribly. So hope he rots in jail. I feel like these, like Chelsea's case is a reminder that really just one bad decision, you know, obviously you should be able to assume that someone who offers you a lift will get you home safely, but it's always not always like that. So, you know, if she just had accepted the lift from her friends, I'm sure that that, you know, is something that they regret to this day. I would if it was me, but, you know, I guess it's just a very, very sad set of circumstances that led to her death. So the second case we're going to discuss today is a missing person who went missing in 2001, Cindy Song. As of recording at the end of October 2023, she's still missing. Cindy was 21 when she went missing from a Halloween party in on the early hours of November 1, 2001. So literally this is a real Halloween case because it happened Halloween night kind of into the next morning. Mm-hmm. Cindy was born and raised in South Korea. She moved to the US in 1995 and she lived with her relatives in Springfield, Virginia, near Alexandria. She graduated high school, enrolled in Pennsylvania State University, where she majored in integrative arts, and she was scheduled to graduate in the spring of 2002. Cindy was described by her friends as having an independent streak, and they also said, though, she liked to be spontaneous. They said she was hardworking and responsible and that she'd been working two jobs in between her studies. So on Halloween night in 2001, Cindy dressed up in a rabbit costume, which consisted of a pink sleeveless shirt with a rabbit design on the front, rabbit ears, a white tennis skirt with a cotton bunny tail attached to the back. There's actually photos of her at that, you know, at the party on that night. Her friend Lisa Kim said she had bought bunny ears and a tail and it was a very cute outfit. It wasn't like a sexy outfit. That was her thing to look cute. She liked to look cute. So it does look very cute. It's kind of just like. It's like a homemade-esque. Uh, outfit not like an, yeah um like it's a not very elaborate she purchased at a store it's like a cute outfit with bunny ears and a tail so lisa and cindy along with another friend stacy went to a halloween party at players nightclub in the hundred block of west college avenue they ended up leaving the venue at around 2 a.m and they went to a friend's apartment where they stayed until 4 a.m i've read they were playing video games and just i guess hanging out mm-hmm. I believe Stacy was driving that night and she dropped Cindy off outside her residence at the State College Park Apartments in the 300 block of West Clinton Avenue at around 4am. She said that Cindy had been drinking that evening and was mildly intoxicated when taken to her apartment. So Stacy waved goodbye to Cindy, but she didn't kind of wait to make sure that Cindy got inside and Cindy was never seen again after this. After nobody could get in touch with Cindy, her friends reported her missing on November 4. When police went into her apartment, they didn't find any sign of a struggle. The door had been locked from the outside, indicating that Cindy had locked it after she left. Her friend Stacy said, we found her eyelashes on the counter because she was wearing fake eyelashes. So we know that she must have at least come in and taken those off. And her backpack was in the room which she was carrying earlier. So we know that she came in and dropped it off. So essentially that means she went in, took her stuff off and then left again and locked the door behind her. Mm-hmm. 
Cindy's cell phone was still in the bag that was found in her apartment. Her friends thought this was strange because they said she never went anywhere without it. The detective who worked Cindy's case was Detective Brian Sprinkle. He said that her bunny costume was nowhere to be found. He said, we know that whenever she left the apartment, she was wearing the clothes that she had on that night. We also know that she had a purse, a pocketbook or whatever she took that had her driver's license and credit cards because we couldn't locate those in the apartment. He said, we have no body, we have no crime scene and we have no actual crime. So it's been very frustrating without any of those pieces of the puzzle. And because of that, it seems like she just vanished into thin air. Detective Sprinkle also checked Cindy's phone records and found that after she was dropped off at 4am, there were no incoming or outgoing calls. And he said he also checked her bank and kind of electronic records. He said there was no activity on her credit cards and there was no emails or any activity on her emails account on her email accounts that gave us any clue as to her disappearance. Cindy's family traveled to the US from South Korea to assist in the search for her. After they arrived, they did clean her apartment after the police's initial search. And this was a mistake as it's believed that any further evidence may have been destroyed during the cleaning process. Hmm. Police started looking into possible reasons for Cindy's disappearance. One angle was that they looked at first was suicide. Cindy had broken up with a boyfriend a few weeks before she vanished, but her friends say that she was getting over the breakup and wasn't depressed. They also found tickets for an upcoming concert in her apartment, as well as a receipt for a new computer that was due to be delivered. Obviously, you know, those probably aren't reasons to not take your life, but I feel like that is the reasoning for saying, you know, she had things to look forward to. She had plans. She wasn't possibly in that mind space. Yeah. Police have also looked into whether her de- her disappearance could be drug-related. Cindy did keep a journal in which she spoke about experimenting with drugs, but there was no evidence that she used drugs on that Halloween night and police eventually kind of discarded this theory. So a few days after she vanished, a woman reported seeing someone who resembled Cindy in Philadelphia's Chinatown neighbourhood. This is around 200 miles from her apartment. The witness claimed that she saw a woman who matched Cindy's description inside a vehicle with an unidentified male. The witness said the woman called for help, but the man interrupted her and told the witness to leave. Investigators, though, have said the witness's story changed several times and they've been unable to verify what she said. They have never really been able to identify the man who was described as having olive or light brown complexion with medium length hair. Also, 200 miles away is far. Yeah. And like if someone's kidnapping a woman, are they really going to let her be out in public? I don't know. I just feel like it's probably unrelated. Mm-hmm. In 2003, bank robber and serial killer Hugo Selensky was brought in as a suspect for Cindy's case. This info about that aspect of the case is from True Crime Edition, which I've been, which I've linked on the blog. It says that an informant told police that Selensky had abducted a woman along with his accomplice, who was called Michael Kurkowski, and he kept her in a walk-in freezer until she died. Hugo Selensky apparently admitted to abducting Cindy but told the investigators that Michael Kurkowski was the one who killed her and kept the bunny ears as a souvenir. Selensky told police that he and Michael mistook Cindy for a sex worker and they kidnapped her and that they buried her body in Luzerne County in Pennsylvania. Police searched Selensky's home and found multiple bodies buried in his yard but none of them were Cindy. Wow. One of the bodies that they found was Michael Kukowski, who was his accomplice, and the girl and Michael's girlfriend Tammy Fassett. So basically the discovery of Kukowski's body meant that investigators really couldn't go any further with their search for Cindy in relation to that lead. So Hugo was acquitted of the murder charges against him but he was convicted of two counts of abuse of a corpse in March 2006. 
In 2013, with the assistance from the FBI, authorities obtained DNA from Cindy's biological parents, and those are now those samples are now in databases, so they can be matched with any unidentified remains or Jane Doe's or anything like that. So October 31st this year, 2023, marks 22 years since Cindy vanished. Ferguson Township Police Chief Diane Conrad said, these cases are never closed. If anything new comes along technologically or if we get any new tips or any other information that comes to us that we think would tie into that case, we would go ahead and look at it. It's not closed. So at the time she vanished, Cindy had long black hair and brown eyes. She was last seen wearing a white tennis skirt, pink t-shirt with a bunny logo, brown knee-high boots, and a red hooded parka. She had pierced ears and a pierced navel. Did it say, did they find the bunny ears and tail at the house? Or no, no, I, she... not that I've ever seen, um, ever. It seems like she literally anywhere. just walked walked in because as a girl, when you wear fake eyelashes, you know, you by the end yeah. of the day, you can't wait to rip them off. So, so it's not weird she took those off, if anyone is wondering. No, I agree. That it seems like, like something immediately happened. Like, And even I've read some comments that, you know, there was a store nearby, so maybe she went out to the store. Um, I do feel like she was abducted, I'd, you know, or something along those lines happened to her. I don't think she left voluntarily. I don't think she took her life. I feel like she was abducted. I just don't know if the Selensky story is credible. It sounds like it maybe could be, but you think that they would have some more evidence if it was. Yeah, and what they have, I don't know, I just feel like there was someone at our house or something, either outside or inside but they said there's no struggle yeah so I feel like she maybe left the house for a reason maybe maybe she did go meet someone and something happened to her there Mm -hmm. maybe she did go to the store and she was abducted then um mystery so it is like that is a real mystery I guess back then there was not as much CCTV you know 2001 much less of kind of an electronic trail to track um Mm -hmm. it's still 2001 it's not like totally Well, I don't know. I guess it's longer ago than it really seems. The police have said they have 21 folders of information in her in her case. Hmm. So, you know, I guess it's now a very, very cold case. It would have to be an, you know, remains were found, you would think would be the only way they're going to probably get closure on it. Yeah. We were talking about it with our last episode, too. I think cases like mysterious disappearances, like this one and the ones we talked about last episode they're so interesting but also I'm just like it kills me to not know what happened yeah I can't yeah even just as a mother I can't even imagine not knowing like you know it would be worse obviously than knowing I guess there's always a little bit of hope that maybe they are alive and maybe she'd leave but I just can't even imagine the not knowing how horrific that would be and with her it's like there's really nothing kind of similar to well, even with like Prisma, there was more. Like she was on camera. You kind of knew what she was up to. But with Cindy, it's like all we know is she got home. But then what? Yeah. Then like why why was she got like I guess, you know, she could have just been hungry and going to get a snack at four AM. Like there would only be a few reasons that you think she would have left the apartment. One to go and meet someone, two probably to go and get something to eat or drink. Mm-hmm. That would be mainly eat at four AM. What what else would you be doing? Yeah. Or if someone was like waiting. Mm. around for her at the house outside or inside or lured her out maybe all right so the last case we're going to discuss today is the lisk family murders the sheriff says all the evidence points to the fact that the murders happened this morning but the bodies weren't discovered for hours 
It was around 2 o'clock this afternoon when a family member came to this house on State Route 2 in the middle of the Bono Curve, as he usually does. Today, he dropped by to use the computer, but after a while, he realized even though there were cars in the driveway, the house was eerily quiet. When he looked around, he found the bodies of 53-year-old William Liskey and 46-year-old Sue Liskey downstairs and the body of 23-year-old Derek Liskey upstairs. After interviewing family members, deputies sent out a bulletin across the state for their suspect, 24-year-old William Liskey. He was picked up around 5.30 in Carroll County, Ohio, where the family has a cottage just a county away from the Pennsylvania border. As I understand it, he moved around an awful lot. This is where he would come periodically because of his parents. That We have some places in Oregon, uh, Sandusky, things of that nature where he jumped around a little bit. The younger Liskey is William's son, Sue's stepson, and Derek's stepbrother. Another one of Sue's sons discovered the bodies. The sheriff says deputies have been called out to this house before. He couldn't say what those calls were about. Tonight, there will be more search warrants and a lot of piecing things together. Sheriff's deputies in the Ohio Bureau of Criminal Identification and Investigation Detectives will process the scene all night to figure out what led to Ottawa County's second homicide case in the past decade. I've been here 19 years. Okay, I've, I've never had a triple murder. 16-year-old Devin Griffin arrived back to his home in Martin, Ohio on, on Halloween, October 31st, 2010. His parents were divorced and he'd been spending some time at his father's house. So this house that he returned home to was his mother's house where she lived with his stepfather. Mm-hmm. He played some video games when he got a call from his aunt. The aunt was concerned that she hadn't been able to get in touch with Devin's mother, Susan, or his stepfather, Bill. And then De- Devin kind of then started looking in the rooms for the rest of his family He thought he'd been the victim of a Halloween prank. He found the bodies of his mother, Susan, his stepfather, Bill, or William, William or Bill, and his brother, Derek, in the house. Susan and Bill were found in their bedroom and Derek was in his bedroom. He soon realized that this was absolutely not a prank and he ran from the house. He called his aunt and then she called 911. Mark Mulligan, who's the prosecutor for Ottawa County, told Oxygen, this was the most disturbing murder scene I'd seen over the course of my career. I can still see it to this day. So police started piecing together the last movements of the family to kind of find out what happened to them. Bill had an adult son also known as, also called William, who was known as BJ. So there's a lot of Bills, Williams, but anyway, (laughs) BJ, when we refer to him, that's William Bill's son. So we'll just call him BJ to differentiate they had spent the day before the murders hunting together that night susan and bill had to get together with a neighbor and that ended around midnight as for some background into the victims susan worked as an office manager for a carpenter apprentice and training committee she loved gardening hunting and camping her friends have said that she had a very big heart and she was described as a loving mother sister aunt and friend bill had been in the air force and he was retired and he loved outdoor activities His family and friends said that he was an amazing friend and a loving father and husband. Derek had a black belt in karate and he liked going out on the lake to spend time on his boat. A friend said of Derek that she would miss their dumb inside jokes, midnight Wendy's runs and his ability to make her day and be there for her. So Derek was due on Halloween morning to go and do some work for Susan's sister-in-law, Laurie Morse, and when Derek didn't show up, to do the work, she's you know, Laurie started calling them. The calls to Derek and Susan went unanswered, and that's when she reached out to Devon to kind of try and find out what was going on. 
Devin has said that when he went into Susan and Bill's bedroom, he initially thought that maybe they were in bed sick. He approached his mother's side of the bed, tapped her leg and began speaking to her in the hopes of waking her up. And that's when he noticed that her pillow was saturated in blood. Officials said it looked like Bill had been shot four to five times. Susan was shot three times with a defensive wound to her hand. And some reports do say that Susan had been sexually assaulted. So blood spatter covered the walls. Derek is said to have had blunt force trauma wound to his head and that this wound was caused by a hammer. Police have said that the theory about why two different murder weapons were used, it was the hammer and the gun. They believe that Derek was killed first and that the killer used the hammer so there would have been no gunshots and that for Bill and Susan wouldn't have woken up. Mm-hmm. No shell casings were found at the scene. That means whoever killed them took the time to pick up the evidence and there was no signs of forced entry or a robbery or a struggle or anything like that. A neighbour told police that she maybe heard banging at around 6.30 on Halloween morning, which police believe were likely the gunshots. Devon was cleared by police very quickly. He said that when he got back to the house after being at his father's, BJ, the son, was loading something into Bill's truck. Devon said that BJ seemed surprisingly upbeat and talkative when he was, quote, usually slow and gloomy and generally he didn't really want much to do with Devon. So he thought that this behaviour was out of the ordinary. Police started to try to find BJ. Susan and BJ had had a relationship that was known to be strained and had been physically violent at times. Detective said BJ and Susan had some altercations. She was accosted by him on several occasions and they did not get along whatsoever. According to Oxygen, BJ was described as a t- troubled person who was dealing with some severe mental illness. He had a history of turning combative and violent and drinking alcohol could exacerbate these behaviours for him. BJ's behaviour had been so volatile that Susan and Bill said he wasn't allowed to live in the house with them. So BJ is not actually related to Susan, right? No, BJ, Susan's stepson is BJ. Okay. So not blood related. Right. Laurie Morse, who's the aunt we mentioned before, said they've had lots of trouble with him with the law and he's threatened Susie before. There's been all kinds of trouble. So the Blade newspaper in Toledo reported that in 2004, BJ was charged with assault and robbery, and he was also said to have hit Susan with a coffee cup and took her car keys. A plea of not guilty by reason of insanity was filed at that time, but the state later dropped the charges. Police tracked down BJ at a family hunting cabin in Carroll County. The cabin and the surrounding property were searched for possible murder weapons. Deputy Mike Balash said, we know we're looking for at least one blunt force object. We believed at the time it was a hammer and then we're looking for a small calibre gun. So police found a rifle and blood in the white truck and they found a bloody hammer that had been stashed in a cupboard in the Lisk home. BJ was charged with murder. Evidence that they found, basically they found DNA on him from his father, stepmother and stepbrother. That DNA was on his clothing. BJ's biological mother had a phone conversation with him in jail and she said, BJ, how could you? And he said, I wasn't in my right mind. And then all of a sudden he said, mum, I can't talk about this anymore. After that phone call with his mother, BJ changed his plea to guilty. He received three life sentences without parole. He did apologize for the murders at his sentencing and he said he blamed mental illness and Satan for his actions. So on March 31st, 2015, BJ took his life in his jail cell from a self-inflicted wound. So I just, like, that is a crazy case. I know, I feel like because it's a little bit older, there's not a whole lot of information out there about it. But imagine being Devon and walking into the house and going to play video games and then realising that your whole family uh, is basically dead in their beds. Yeah. It's just like a movie. It cannot be real, but it is. 
I would like to know more about like what actually happened. I know he's saying he wasn't in his right mind, but like what happened? And even for if it did happen at 6.30 in the morning, like when the neighbor said they heard the banging, like I feel like he and they were all sleeping, it. clearly. That's not, it doesn't sound like it was an argument you know, that got out of hand. Yeah, you would think at 6.30 in the morning they would all be sleeping. It sounds like he killed B, um, the brother and then he killed probably his father first and then Susan woke up and that's why she had the defensive wound. I guess there is also less information because he did um, kill himself. Plead, yeah. Well, he pled guilty too, so that's not like yeah, there was a no trial. trial trial to get into all the details. I'm surprised. Well, then I was also going to say, I'm surprised they didn't try to go the mental illness route more, at least mm. look into that more. But I guess he just pled guilty. So and that was it. So just as kind of some interesting stats that we found around a Halloween crime, there are on Halloween night, 40% of car accident fatalities are due to drinking and driving, which isn't really surprising, I don't think, based on Halloween parties and things that would be happening that night. Mm-hmm. Property crime is the most common crime committed on Halloween with 60% of property crimes involving theft. Again, I guess that's pretty explainable because people are out and about and not at home and, you know, their houses are obviously empty. So maybe that could be explained. I was going to ask, but you probably don't because you guys don't even really celebrate Halloween. But here, at least I feel like it's not really a thing anymore back in the day. The night before Halloween is mischief night and that's when kids are supposed to go out and like for a toilet paper and trees and like egg houses and stuff. So I don't know why that's a thing. I I feel like it's always been talked about and sometimes I would see toilet paper trees and stuff. I feel that's where the property crime maybe like stems from Mm. and just more people being outside walking around. I did find an interesting stat from a Northeastern University professor that he claims that violent crimes increase by as much as 50% on Halloween. That's interesting. Um, I guess, again, alcohol... You know, people going crazy, like wild. I mean, not crazy, crazy, but people going wild. That would be rambunctious. Yeah, rowdy. So that is it, I think, for those three cases, three very different cases, um, but interesting timings for them to have happened. Yeah, it is crazy. And from those stats, I hope that everyone has a safe Halloween and doesn't get into any trouble. Everyone looks out for each other and is nice to each other and just like has a fun time for Halloween. So everything for these cases will be on our blog if you want to read more about them at truecrimesocietyblog.com. Follow us on Instagram where we are always posting about all the current updates and everything going on. We're at True Crime Society there. And if you want to follow our personal accounts, mine is StephSum underscore Olivia's is TCS Olivia. And you can check us out on Patreon. We do ad-free episodes, earlier release of these episodes. And then we also do a weekly bonus episode. Plus, we have the Patreon community, which is just like private to do posts and stuff. And we have some fun group chats there. One is a casual group chat where we've all been sharing pictures of our pets. And then we have a specifically crime group chat to talk about whatever's going on in the world at the time. So check us out there. Yeah. And as always, follow, subscribe, do all those things on whatever platform you listen on. Leave us a nice review if you're enjoying the podcast and share with your friends or anyone who you think might like the podcast. That is it. Like I said, stay safe, especially for Halloween. Hope everyone has a fun time. 
If you have any good costumes, send us a pic. Yeah. I want to see Halloween costumes. Or, or decorations we want to see. Yeah, I am not doing anything or being anything. <laughs> I am lazy this year. Um, so yeah, thank you guys for listening. Stay safe and peace out. See ya.